2: The one that appears in every period drama. The
3: leading lady is getting ready for the ball, or dressing for dinner, or a turn around the gardens, where she hopes to attract the attention of the most eligible bachelor in town and asks her lady's maid for one thing make
2: it tighter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In today's episode, we're unlacing the issue surrounding one of the most controversial garments in women's dress the corset.
1: Other ideas that the corset, you know, caused to split your liver in half, you know, crushed your internal organs. Well, some of the accounts are quite crazy. Most women who
3: are putting on a corset tonight, they're not going to be thinking of them making a feminist statement. They
4: want to look hot. I noticed that when I was younger, there wasn't really anywhere that I could go shopping for bras. That sort of developed a more deeper love and fascination for lingerie just because I couldn't have it. For around
3: 400 years, millions of women wore corsets, stays, bodices, or girdles
2: almost every day of their lives. A corset, broadly, is an undergarment worn to give the body shape, structure, or protection beneath the clothes. While corset wearers have tended to be women, children and men have also worn them, particularly in the 19th century. Corsets have gone in and out of popularity and through various
3: shapes and forms since the 15th century changing in shape to reflect current fashions or beauty ideals. At their simplest, they're just another layer of fabric. At their most complex, they can be works of art and genius engineering, made of multiple different pieces and components that help to mold and
2: reshape the appearance of the body. No biggie, right? Except corsets always seem to raise temperatures. And tempers. They've been called instruments of torture, tools of the patriarchy. Blamed for organ failure, broken ribs, fainting fits,
3: hysteria, plummeting birth rates, promiscuity, social unrest. Like many garments, the corset seems to have
2: taken a battering simply because women have worn it. And the corset never fails to provoke. Even today, if you want to ignite conversation and controversy, just lace yourself up in a corset. Vivian Westwood knew it when she brought the corset to the fashion runway in the 1980s. Madonna knew it when she wore a pink Jean-Paul Gaultier pointy-cone bustier for her Blonde Ambition tour in the 90s. And Janet Jackson knew it when she had a rubber bodice wardrobe malfunction live at the Super Bowl in 2004.
3: When Billie Eilish chose to reveal her figure for the first time on the cover of British Vogue in 2021, she did it wearing, you've guessed it, a
2: corset. And more recently, Sam Smith wore one on the cover of Perfect magazine. A corset designed by one of today's guests. More on which in a moment. So in this episode, we're asking, what is it about the corset that always gets people so hot and bothered? We're excited to be discussing these questions with Dr. Valerie Steele,
3: the esteemed historian and director of the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Her book, The Corset, brought about a significant rethinking of their history and impact. She's the ultimate authority, And she'll be talking to us about some of the myths that surround our favorite controversial undergarment.
2: We'll also speak with artist and designer Michaela Stark about how she's revolutionizing corsets in a way that celebrates all bodies.
3: I love how Michaela has taken something that was a negative experience in her young life and turned it into something that is body positive. But I'm jumping ahead. More on that later.
2: Before that, our first guest is a woman Kate and I got slightly fangirly over when she spoke to us from her office in New York. Here's Dr. Valerie Steele.
1: I think what really struck me about the corset was that it seemed to be the most controversial garment in the history of Western fashion. The only thing really comparable would be, you know, foot binding in China. And I was interested in the relation of corsetry to the body and to gender. Other ideas that the corset, you know, caused divide split your liver in half, you know, crushed your internal organs. Well, some of the accounts are quite crazy, you know. It caused the blood inside you to boil and go to your brain instead of your uterus. And I mean, it has a lot to, to do with fantasies and problems that doctors in the past had with women's bodies. Many of the critiques of fashion are not dissimilar to critiques of female education, which they said would suck all the blood out of your uterus into your brain and make educated women sterile.
3: So is the reading of um, the the cause that a kind of tool of the patriarchy rather than the cause that being the tool
1: of the patriarchy? Well, the thing is, it can be interpreted and has been interpreted in different ways. And it is striking to me how very attached many people have been to the idea that, no, it must be cruel and oppressive, because it seems to be that way from our perspective today, and the way of sort of patronizing women of the past and saying, how could they be so foolish? I think it's not a useful way to see how in the present, as in the past, individuals negotiate demands from their society and their own feelings about themselves and their bodies.
3: Just to go back a little bit, in case our our listeners don't know about this, but looking back, when did we first
1: see the emergence of the corset? Well, you see it emerging in a sense by the 15th, 16th century, particularly in places like Spain and Italy. And it seems to have to be related to the development of foundation wear for under the skirt as well as for the top. So rather than having clothes hanging essentially from the shoulders, you had a separate bodice and skirt. And in these cases, the stiffenings in the bodice and in the skirt gradually became not just, you know, the insertion of of cloth stiffening, but the insertion of first a bone down the front like a busk and then additional bones or other kinds of materials on the sides which would simultaneously make the waist smaller and make the hips look larger as the hoop skirt went out and also supported the bust. So it has a lot to do with the development of clothing construction, different materials and different forms of clothing. And you see it as well. And to some extent in men's clothes, because if you look at, uh, you know, Elizabethan male portraiture, you find that there also, there's a very much a stiffened doublet uh, and the, the, body is, in a sense, armored, ha- which has a lot to do with the aristocratic feeling that, you know, the body was weak and had to be strengthened and supported. You see the idea that women's bodies and children's bodies are seen as being weaker, but the idea was there for men, too, to keep your body straight so you weren't hunched over like a poor working person, that the corset was seen as being a sign of status as well as, literally stature. So your hard erect body, which has obvious psychoanalytic components as well. I think that it's important not to oversimplify the story of any garment, including the corset, that it's a mistake to view the demise of corsetry unilaterally as just the liberation of women's bodies. Because in fact, what really has happened is that You have the internalization of the corset through diet, exercise, and even plastic surgery, you know, tummy tucks or liposuction. So it involves different ways of controlling and stylizing the body, which continue today. And over the centuries, women have not unilaterally perceived the corset in the same way. Some of them did perceive it as oppressive and painful Others regarded it the way many women today would regard, say, high heels or brasiers, just as part of the kind of the code of fashion that they agreed to. And then still others saw it as something which was more provocative, particularly after Madonna kind of reappropriated some of the fetishistic uses of the corset through her collaboration with Jean-Paul Gaultier. I think the main misconception is that it was always automatically very, very dangerous to the health. And I've actually collaborated with both doctors and nurses to do research into this. And many of the diseases, the that she was associated with were either caused by other things or not regarded as diseases at all. So I was kind of surprised when I looked into it to see how naive generations of historians had been when they said, oh, you know, the corset causes curvature of the spine. It doesn't cause that. That was an okay hypothesis because women do get curvature of the spine more than men. And the corset covers that part of the body. So we might make that guess. But in fact, curvature of the spine is still more common among women than men. And We no longer wear corsets. And indeed, doctors use corsets to help cure scoliosis curvature of the spot. So some of the arguments that have been going on since the 18th century, does it cause this? Does it correct it? What's the relationship to it? Continue to hold a place in the cultural imagination today.
2: There is a lot of talk about designers like Poiret and Chanel liberating women from the corset, but you've talked about women internalizing the corset. Have we liberated ourselves from anything? And, and what do you mean by the idea of internalizing it?
1: Well, I think for women for some centuries in the 18th, 19th century, and for aristocratic women even earlier, the, um, the control of the body was outsourced to your clothing, including particularly the corset. And then by the late 19th, and early 20th century, it started to be seen that really only older or fatter women should rely on a corset. And sometimes it's funny because Around 1903, there were a lot of interviews in Les Mode magazine, and they asked all these actresses, who's your favorite couturier? You know, Worth, Doucet, who's your favorite jeweler? Cartier, the czar, who's your favorite corseteer? And a lot of them go, I don't need to wear a corset. And you look at their photograph and you go, babe, you are so wearing a corset. But it's already it's already started to seem better to not need it, to have a naturally- curvaceous body with a slimmer waist and a very full bosom, hips, a a pretty big derriere. Now then, by the first decade into the 20th century, the ideal of feminine beauty starts to become slimmer and in a way younger, what at the time people described as a shift from Venus to Diana, you know, the virginal goddess rather than the love goddess. And in that way, as clothes began to show more of your body not only did you not need a corset if you were slim and young, but it looked funny under your clothes. You couldn't even tango or anything if you were wearing a boned corset. It was said that women would either take off their corsets before they went out to tango, or they'd buy rubberized tango corsets and brasiers so that they could bend backward and do all the sinuous moves of the of the tango. So in that way, you're getting a sense where not so much for explicitly feminist liberal clothing liberation ideas, but rather for new ideals of beauty and new sort of lifestyle things like new dances. Uh, younger women were increasingly not willing to put up with the discomfort, the stiffness, etc. of corsets.
2: The, I, I love the idea of taking off your corset to tango being a precursor to burning your bra. You know, it's, like, it's just all about ideas of propriety,
1: really. Propriety is a huge part of this, yes, because we can see the eroticizing aspects of the corset easily because we see it through the Madonna lens. But for a Victorian woman, it was also seen through the lens of propriety. It not only made you look younger and curvier and sexier, it also made you look more aristocratic and more respectable. Loose women, that term literally refers to loose, they're not wearing a tight corset. They're not, they're not laced into a corset. So the sexual license is evoked by the idea of a slatternly woman who's like slouching around in a house gown and not bothering to get dressed.
2: What do you see as the key distinctions between contemporary corsets and historic versions?
1: Well, historic versions of corsetry had to be worn as foundation wear, and they In most occasions, they had to be worn. Not always. Women didn't always wear corsets at home, but if they got dressed to go out on the street or to go to a party, they certainly wore a corset. Nowadays, corset wearing is entirely optional. And you find some women, but frankly, more men in the corset world who are wearing corsets You know, to go out to clubs and who sometimes have a thing about corsets. You've suddenly also gotten this somewhat strange phenomenon of you know, kind of Kardashian-type ideas that if you wear certain corsetry-type garments while you exercise, it will actually melt the fat away. And this is a strange strange kind of fantasy where you're combining the idea of exercise, which has been so much a part of body discipline for us since the turn of the 20th century, uh, to the older idea of the bodily discipline being part of the, the clothing itself. So we've even gotten people starting to get worried like, oh, we should discourage this kind of thing because it's dangerous. It's not so much that it's dangerous, it's just pointless. It's not going to be, you know, you take off the corset and your body, the fat, everything else pops back right out again. It's not that it's going to help you lose any weight permanently, although you might sweat off a little bit of water weight.
3: We're seeing in fashion a lot of underwear being worn as outerwear right now. What do you make of that?
1: Well, underwear's outerwear is a trend which has been around, of course, since the 1980s. I mean, with Vivian Westwood and Gautier, and then later on with a lot of designers doing slip dresses, you know, sort of softer lingerie dressing. Westwood even pioneered sort of underpants for women, which is sort of like was a big taboo, although men had been doing that, with showing the the top of their Calvin's underwear for quite a while. I think that it's the idea that this is an intimate, secret, sexual kind of clothing. And so if you're showing it, it's almost as though you're showing yourself naked. And it might even be a little bit sexier because of this sort of hint of, and now soon you'll see even more. So it's got this tantalizing, the attraction of concealment, as well as what it seems to be like a play on I'm practically naked.
3: That really links back to the 19th century reading of of, of underwear as well when when it was seen in um, art. And it it was kind of that Manet's quote about um, the corset being the nude of our times.
1: Exactly, exactly. That Manet realized that for many people, in a way that the almost nude woman wearing a corset and a little chemise and a petticoat might be sexier than a completely naked woman, both because the naked woman might have a more flawed body and the corset would quote-unquote correct any flaws or any immediately visual flaws, pushing the breasts up, cinching the waist in, pushing the hips out, creating a kind of artificial hourglass, but also perhaps more profound fears about you know, the vagina as being something that was scary. And then also this idea that it was... Uh, the smooth, silky corset was like a second skin, but an idealizing skin that concealed anything that might be too real and too frightening.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
3: Emily, I don't actually own a corset right now, but this episode's made me really want to get one. Especially one from our next guest, Michaela
2: Stark. Michaela's an Australian artist and designer. She pushes the limits of corsetry and redefines what it's for in powerful ways. Often styling herself for shoots in her creations, which morph the body and emphasize features that the mainstream might view as flaws, inviting us to consider the female form in a new and inclusive way.
3: Before she launched her corsetry career, she went on tour as a tailor for none other than Queen Beyoncé. And she's made corsets for other stars, including Tovlo and as we
2: said earlier, Sam Smith. She's been called a corset contortionist and that body morphing bitch. Michaela lives in London now, and she came down to the Hello Girl studio to tell us about her personal corset revolution.
4: I became interested in corsets in fashion school. In our fashion school, I went to QUT in Australia. It had a really big focus on sort of the socio-political role of garments in fashion history or just in Western history in general. So I really became interested in sort of the role that corsetry had to play in terms of women's bodies and even children, little girls bodies, and shaping that body to adhere to sort of societal standards of beauty. Um, And I think that from that angle, that really captured my attention of corsetry specifically. But aside from that, I was always very interested in lingerie. I really developed boobs very early. And I noticed that when I was younger, there wasn't really anywhere that I could go shopping for bras, whereas my friends were able to sort of go to all the like, cute, affordable bras stores that were catering for their size. And I always found myself in like, the granny section in Target, and was really, really insecure about that. And I think that that sort of developed a more deeper love and fascination for lingerie just because I couldn't have it. And I think it Honestly, could be as simple as that. And I remember having to shop at a, at a place called Big Girls Don't Cry Anymore. I feel bad. If I'm giving them a bad rap. <gasps> That's a horrible they actually, name. It's a horrible name. And I remember Big Girls crying. Don't Cry Anymore. <laughs> and it's like dot, 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 anymore. And they do, to their credit, they do make, like, sort of nice bras for, like, Plus size girls, but as a 15 year old shopping in a store like that, having to drive to like the outskirts of the city with my mum, I was crying in those change rooms, like for sure. Big girls do cry. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> so, sort of a mix between, you know, me not feeling like I am able to shop for cute bras and underwear, and then also at the same time studying the political role of Corsetry in history.
3: That leads us onto something because listeners won't have a visual of of what your corsetry looks like. Could right. you explain what a piece, a typical,
4: if there is such a thing as a typical
3: <laughs> Michaela Stark corset, what one might look like and the effect that it has on the wearer's body?
4: Okay. So at the moment I have two really typical corset styles. One of them is like my main one and it's my corsets, while they're informed by all of this theoretical work, it also is just a feeling of when you feel like you're wearing clothes that just aren't made to fit you. And so say you're, you've are put on an outfit and then you're, you feel your stomach bulge out from underneath it and you feel your... When you start, like, walking around and actually moving, your boobs pop out all of a sudden in the middle of the day and you get really uncomfortable. You put on a belt that feels great in the morning and then halfway through the day, like, it's feeling really tight and the fat is, like, sort of coming out the top and coming out the bottom and, like... Yeah, it's that sort of feeling... But I've done it in a way that sort of celebrates that because you feel in control of it, and that's the intention of the outfit. So my typical, like, my main corset, I would say is my asymmetric boob corset. And it kind of looks like a love heart, but one side is designed to push your breast right up and hold it right up using, like, firm seal boning. And the other is designed to sort of curve around your boob and your boob literally pops out like it's being served on a plate. And then it makes your waist quite... Tiny. If you do it up like all the way, if you're training corsetry, and then because you've compressed your waist, usually a corset would then go past your waist and also compress your stomach. But mine doesn't. It allows all the fat to sort of expand out, and so it gives you like this silhouette of like a small waist, one push-up boob, one boob falling out, and like a big, big stomach. I would also say that my corsetry um, is very liberating to wear, but the idea of corsetry in general has never been about comfort. I learned the art of corsetry. It was when I graduated. Properly, I moved to London, and I very quickly became a seamstress. I was working in sort of young London fashion houses that were like with Fashion East or New Gen and having to learn how to make clothes on like the level that they made it on. And like I was, I was like the head seamstress at a brand for the time, making like the entire stock for selfridges and matches, and like so I had to get really good at sewing. In that time, I started learning how to make the fundamental parts of corsetry because some of them had corsets in their collection, and I was a head seamstress, so I had to really figure it out on the spot. There were times where I would be sewing and I would have sort of YouTube under the table, like <laughs> <laughs> trying to teach myself how to do things that I didn't know how to do because I really just got thrown into that job. And then I did like a video and went on tour with Beyonce, where I was a personal tailor. And working with sort of couture garments that she was wearing and having to retailer them or making pieces that also just, I don't know. And then I went to Paris and was also working in luxury fashion houses there. So it was very like much a very quick couple years where I just had to really learn how to make garments well. And I got very much into sort of the lingerie sphere when I was making that. After that, like when I was sort of doing my own practice, I took a year off over covid to really teach myself how to make corsetry. And then looking back at that time, I still wasn't that good at it. Like I look back at my early corsets and I'm like, oh my God. When I was first making corsets on myself, I was just pinching into the fabric in any way and getting the shape that I wanted. But then there was all these like curved crazy lines that I was trying to put boning through that just, and this was when I was like a proper trained seamstress just trying to do this and it just didn't work. It worked, but It's not how you make proper corsetry. And then I've had someone then take those pieces that I've done, understand what I'm trying to achieve through cut, and then help me refine that and teach me more techniques. And it's really just been a slow process of, like, trial and error, learning from a professional, trial and error, being put into a professional environment where I have to know. Corsets can definitely be feminist. Corsets were used as a tool to suppress the women's body. I think that now... Because obviously back in the day, women were choosing to wear it. It wasn't like they were forced at gunpoint to wear the corset. But it was very much in a societal expectation way, in a way that was like they were expected to wear it in order to fit in. I think nowadays that there's still that element with corsetry and shapewear specifically, but then there's this whole other element of sort of women taking a symbol that used to be oppressive and reclaiming it on their own. And not just women. I see men. I see non-binary people all embracing the corset and reclaiming it in a way that it was never intended for, but in a way that celebrates their own body and celebrates their own curves or just in a way that makes them feel sexy. And I think that that's really great.
2: I really like her. She's so fascinating. What I really loved about our conversation was just thinking about how her corsetry connects to corsets from the past. Like, it would be unrecognizable to wearers in the 19th century. They'd be shocked. They'd be They'd shocked. Be appalled. I mean, it's shocking now, right? Right. But it, she does use these classic corsetry techniques to create something that feels totally modern, which just goes to show that corsetry never goes away. People just keep pushing it and evolving it for whatever the current generation needs
3: that's totally right i i and i love how she looks in those in those corsets and how she completely transforms her body and makes those lines and rolls of fat that we would sort of dismiss or want to brush out of a picture she makes them into the most beautiful form i i really love it i could look at those um corsets all day um, I mean, most people, most women who are putting on a corset this weekend or tonight, they're they're not going to be thinking of them making a feminist statement or an artistic statement. But no, they just want to look hot. They want to look hot, which is fine. But that's the thing about the corset: you kind of are making a statement, even when you're not.
2: Yes, even if the statement is, "I want an idealized form," and this is how I'm, you know, aiming to achieve it. Right. Yeah. Like if it, the the most the context in which we see the most corsetry these days. For the mainstream, like not for Michaela Stark wearers or really directional fashion shoots, is the bridal market. Like the only corsets I've ever had, I had a a corset custom made to wear under my bridal gown, mm. um, and it was incredible. It was it, it just it, probably more beautiful than the gown itself. But the point was that it would never really be seen it by would most never people. be seen. <laughs> the allure of the corset. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you see the late Vivian Westwood, the late great Vivian Westwood, of course, they were a staple of her runway designs and and her bridal designs, too. So this garment that has these really edgy, fetishy connotations is also one that we see appearing in a context where the associations remain like chasteness and virginity and...
3: But also really sexy and hot. But also really
2: then. sexy and hot, yeah. Point is, the corset is an idea that we can play with and make our own, whatever way that works for you.
3: Hallelujah. That's all we've got time for this week. If you've got something you want to get off your chest, pun <laughs> totally intended, <Kate. laughs> or about any other underwear matter, then DM us your thoughts. Links in the show notes.
2: By the way, you can find Michaela's work and see her wearing it on Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hello Girls. Next week, we're going big. Big Knickers.
4: Hello Girls was written and presented by Emily Cronin and Kate Finnegan. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich with music and audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. Hello Girls is a Podmasters production.